Uh, take your Bibles and turn in them to Acts 17. And as you're turning there, just uh, you can listen and turn at the same time. Uh, today at uh, um, two o'clock here at the church, there is a memorial service for Eileen Fraser. And uh, Eileen passed away a number of months ago and we are now able to have that service. So we invite you to come and be part of that and support the family. And then on Friday um, at Yates Memorial, uh, there is a service for Harold Eder. And that service will be at 1.30. And uh, so if you're able to steal away on Friday at 1.30 and join us at Yates, that would be great um, to have you there and to support his wife, Miriam, and the family. Uh, Acts chapter 17, 1 to 9, we're just taking a two-week sort of break now. We've been in uh, a look at the sanctification of our inner world and the things that we say to ourselves. And uh, we're taking a couple weeks to talk about some various themes and then uh, in, on the 26th of June, we will dive into the book of 2 Thessalonians and spend um, a number of weeks uh, in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So you can be reading ahead on that if you um, wish to sort of know what's coming down the road. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that's Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I wanted to just take a couple moments this morning or our time this morning to think about how churches start and sort of what is the foundation of a true church, um, a biblical church. I hope you understand that at just on this very basic level, the church is not this building. We often use language that I'm going to church. Well, we're not actually. This, is, this building is a place where the church gathers, but this building is not the church, at least from a theological perspective. And so the church is a people of God. We are called out of the world, called into a relationship with God, and together as called out ones, we compromise the church. So how do churches get started? How do groups of called out ones begin to gather together and what matters to them as they begin to gather? Well, we see some of that contained in this text. I was thinking a little bit about this as it relates to Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church and how Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, a group of people, started meeting here. Uh, some of you may know the history better than I. I didn't really know a ton about the history, but this church began all the way back in May of 1950. And in... Uh, in that period of time, just a, a few months previous to that, uh, some 72 years ago, a pastor, uh, Burnett, and his family moved over here from Ladner. 
And they actually didn't move into the Parksville area. They moved up to Courtney. But there happened to be a group of people in the Parksville area who had been hoping and praying that uh, a church would start up here, a Baptist church would start in this area. And so they contacted uh, Reverend Burnett and said, listen, would you come down and meet with us and begin to help us grow? And so he came down in May of 1950 and services began in uh, a home of one of those individuals. Uh, they happen to own an automotive store here in the Parksville area. But before the month had passed, the numbers had grown so much that they could no longer meet in the home. They had to meet in the community hall and after a period of time, they moved from the community hall and went into the Legion, which is still here. Uh, and uh, this congregation was officially organized uh, in the following year, in July 10th, 1951. And it was organized under the name of Parksville Regular Baptist Church. Now, you have to attend the membership class to understand what the regular stands for. It has nothing to do with constitution. Uh, it has everything to do with theology. And so, but it was organized here in 1951 as a Parksville Regular Baptist Church. Uh, shortly after that, they purchased some land. And then about three years later, they actually built a Panabode building on that land. And the Panabode building is still standing here today. You can see it uh, just beside the Legion Hall behind the medical building there. And so that was the initial beginnings of Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church 72 years ago from the hopes and desires of a few people that were gathered here that wanted to see a work of the Lord um, take hold in this community. Well, we have something of the circumstances behind this uh, start of the church in Thessalonica, and each uh, church, I think, has unique circumstances. But as I was reading through this, I thought, well, it's important for us at least to highlight some of these circumstances that went into uh, the church that God would plant in Thessalonica, which was in Macedonia. One of the things that struck me was the incredible courage of the Paul and Silas as they came to Thessalonica. And the courage was due to the fact that they had come from Philippi. And if you just read the chapter before, you realize that while they were in Philippi, uh, there had been such antagonism and, and disdain towards them that they had been seized by a, a group of people and dragged into the marketplace. And in fact, a mob had gathered together um, that were really ticked off at what these men were saying in that particular city. Uh, the chief magistrates, the Bible tells us, they stripped them of their robes and they beat them with rods. This was not a pleasant experience. It was, in fact, quite a debilitating and painful experience. And when they had finished that, they threw them in jail. And some of you may remember that that's where, in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were doing what? Worshiping God. They were singing. Uh, in the midst of their pain and their suffering and maybe a few cracked ribs or who knows what, they were singing and they were thankful that they had been found worthy to suffer and be treated in such a way for the gospel. The next day they were, um, God had actually led them out of prison. The next day they were found by the leaders of the town and they were urged to get out of town. We don't want you here anymore. And so that same day they left Philippi uh, and they made their way uh, to Thessalonica. That in itself would have taken incredible amount of courage and not a little bit of determination because Thessalonica was about 160 kilometers away from Philippi. They didn't have motorcycles or um, buses. Or, um, they likely would have made that journey on foot. It's the same distance essentially between Victoria and Parksville. That's a long way to walk. Uh, and it's a long way to walk when you're all beat up and bruised and, as they say, maybe a few ribs that were broken. Uh, 
And I can imagine the conversation as they are coming here. Maybe uh, they were getting a little bit discouraged or maybe they were actually really excited about what was facing them in this uh, next opportunity. Maybe they were just physically exhausted. After all, they had just been beaten. They had been up through the night singing. They had had a, this urgent send-off and now they were making their way um, from Philippi to uh, Thessalonia or Thessalonica. And so it was fascinating as I thought about that. Here are these uh, two men uh, in considerable um, circumstances and requiring, I think, uh, a measure of courage and determination making their way to Thessalonica. And you say, well, what did they do when they got to Thessalonica? Um, Well, Paul tells us a little bit about that in the book of Thessalonians when he says this, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, So that was their background. That was the experience as they came to Thessalonica. It says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. One of the things that drove these men was the gospel. They were filled with the spirit of God. And the spirit of God gave them boldness to testify of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And So he said they had boldness to declare the gospel of God to them in much conflict. And I thought to myself, what is it about the gospel that matters? What is it about the gospel that matters to you? Is there an urgency in you to both understand it and share it? Do we we have this sort of this, this conviction that the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that God has provided, that that is something that, that no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our pain, no matter what we might face, our family needs to hear it. Our wife or our husband needs to need it. Our children or our grandchildren need to hear it. Or the people that we work with or go to school with, I must, I must find or have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Paul would say in the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. So at the heart of the gospel is a salvation. It's a deliverance. It's a a, a rescue. And it's a rescue from uh, an eternity separated from God to an eternity spent with God. It's a rescue from the captivity and the bondage and the curse of our sins to freedom from that, to redemption and re- reconciliation with God. That's what's at the heart of the gospel. And Paul and Silas had experienced that deliver- deliverance in such a meaningful, real way that no matter where they went, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what they faced, they were not ashamed of that and had a boldness to declare that. It was the same thing that Jesus had. As Jesus uh, started his ministry, uh, it describes in various ways in the gospel how he went through all all the cities and the, the villages of Israel teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, this wonderful news of the kingdom of God and healing people of various diseases and of every affliction. And in fact, the Bible tells us that until the gospel is proclaimed to all the world, And I'm not exactly sure what that means, but until there is this universal um, declaration, this bold telling of the gospel, Christ will not come again. And that's pretty clear from the book of Matthew. After John was arrested, Jesus, it says, came into Galilee again, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is something we believe as well. We put our faith in, we put our trust in, we say, yes, I think that is true. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, that resonates with me. I trust it. I believe that message to be what I need and from God himself. 
And in fact, there's a uh, scripture in Romans where it talks about those who bring the gospel as having beautiful feet. Beautiful feet because of the circumstances and the, and the ground and whatever they cover to bring that good news to those of us who have never heard it. And I'm sure the people in Thessalonica were amazed and thankful of the beautiful feet of Paul and Silas as they made that 160-kilometer journey, that 95-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica to share the gospel with them. And so there is circumstances behind this church where this incredible courage of these men, where the determination of them to get from point A to point B, the boldness that they had in spite of the circumstances and the suffering and what they might face to share the gospel. And then there was the, the habit of Paul. It says that as he came into Thessalonica, as was his habit or as usual or as was his custom, he went to the synagogue for three uh, Saturdays. That in itself is, is not necessarily uh, earth-shattering as much as it just reminded me and points me to the fact that we need to develop godly habits. And those may differ in each of our lives, but there should be a few habits that we share in common as Christians and as followers of God. A Jewish a synagogue needed to have 10 Christian or 10 Jewish men in order to be established. So we know that there was at least 10 Jewish men in Thessalonica that had started this synagogue. And uh, there was this, not unlike this small group of people back in 1950 in Parksville that were gathered together and said, we want to form a gathering of God's called out ones or God's church. But it wasn't just Jews that attended this synagogue. It seems pretty clear that there were others that somehow were fascinated by what they talked about. They were fascinated by the scriptures that they opened. They realized that even though they had no familiarity with the God of the Jews necessarily, that they were God-fearing. There was an awareness in them that there was an accountability to something that was bigger than them, uh, that was outside of themselves. And so it says there were Greeks and there were God-fearers and there were leading women of the city that were also part of this gathering. And so as was his habit or his custom, Paul went there. Actually, you can read the book of Acts and you see again and again that on, uh, on the Sabbath that Paul would be looking for a gathering of like-minded people. I think at the very least, it's good for us to think about what is our habit as it relates to the gathering of God's people. Is there a desire? Is there a longing? Is there a custom? Is there a pattern? that we have cultivated, that draws us to where the people of God are gathered. So those were the, sort of the four circumstances that, that were behind the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. What about the truths? Um, what about the, 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 the pillars, the rocks of what constitutes a church? What are the truths that were laid as the foundation of the church? I think there's three, and these are relevant to any group of people that gathers anywhere in the world that calls themselves a church. Notice what it says that Paul did. It says when he, he gathered with them on the Sabbath, he reasoned with them through the scriptures. That's really important to wrap our heads around. He reasoned from the scriptures. What authority do we turn to for life? What authority guides our life? What authority directs our life? 
For many, there's come to the conclusion that we believe that the scriptures are the word of God for us. They're a gift of God to humankind. That God who spoke this world into existence by his very word and the revelation of God in the world around us or the spoken creation of God tells us about God. It declares the glory of God. It tells us something about the nature of a, a something, a being that could create this incredible world. Well, that God also spoke to us in this word. This is the living word of God. This, is the, this contains the very words of God to guide and direct humanity, even in our day. And so Paul would reason with them from the scriptures. And the scriptures, I think, are so helpful in so many areas of life. But I was really thinking of, uh, of uh, one uh, uh, evangelist used to comment around uh, these um, uh, these questions is what authority do we turn to for the answers of why is there something and not nothing? Well, the Bible has an answer to that. Where do we turn to find out why is there right and wrong? Why do we have a sense of right and wrong? Why, why do we know intuitively that some things are good, some things are bad, some things are righteous, some things are evil? Well, the scripture tells us where morality comes from. What, what, what gives meaning to life? How do I, how do I find meaning in life? What, what, is there anything that directs me or fills me or say, I have a purpose, I have a reason for being here? Well, the scripture describes where meaning in life comes from. What happens when I die? These are like four big questions of life. Well, what happens when I die? Is there life after death? Well, the scripture has a solid, clear answer of what happens when I die and of why I think about what happens when I die. And as this individual would say that of those four questions, which are uh, core questions that we all wrestle through with life, that the scriptures provide the most coherent answer to those. Other faiths and other religions might have an answer to one or the other, but rarely, or you can't find one that has an answer to all four of those. You come to the scriptures and it answers with clarity and with certainty those four questions. When we think of these scriptures where it says Paul reasoned with them according to the scripture, we understand that that originally was the Old Testament scriptures, the 39 books that are covered between Genesis and Malachi, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, God's word to them. Uh, as uh, Paul is talking to Timothy and he's reminding Timothy that he had been taught the scriptures from childhood. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what we are convinced of as followers of Christ. This is not ordinary book, or this is not an ordinary book. This is not just words on a page. There is a living dynamic to these pages. That is why sometimes as we come to church and we gather and uh, somebody will say something or a song or a prayer or a scripture is read and you say, to yourself, how, does that, how does that know? Uh, how does it, why does that word convict me? Why, how does that word know about my life? Well, there's this living quality to the words of God. They're, they are an eternal word. They will never fade. And so he says they are profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So this scripture is, we understand it to be breathed out by God. Now in the, uh, the last uh, 
well, probably the, the next 300 years of the first, second, and third century, the New Testament was gathered together. And there's principles around why we have a New Testament and what it, why some books were in it and some are not in it. But the whole counsel of God now is contained in the 66 books of the Bible. And those who uh, help us understand these things with uh, simple ways to do it say that uh, the Old and New Testament go together. That, that when you consider the Bible, the New Testament is contained in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, there's hints all over the place of the New Testament. And the Old Testament is explained in the New Testament. Some of these scriptures and ideas that you read in the Old Testament that you don't understand, they are explained in the New Testament. And so we read these two parts of the same book together. We need to be in the Old Testament. We need to be in the New Testament. They are made to go together. So why the scriptures? Well, because it's the source of truth. The scriptures are true. They are reliable. They are righteous. You can read about the description of the sufficiency of scripture in Psalm 19, for example. Why the scriptures? Because God is a speaking God. This is a miracle or the marvel that God didn't just leave us alone, that God didn't just stay away from us, but that God has actually communicated to us. And what's even more remarkable is that, that, that we can wrestle with the scriptures, we can argue with the scriptures, we can discuss the scriptures. That's what it says. Paul reasoned with them in the scriptures. This is why we say from time to time, don't check your brain out at the door when you come into this place with God's people. If anything, determine I'm going to listen carefully. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to see if that makes sense. I'm going to see if there's a rationale to that or if there's a logic to that. I'm going to see if that, 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 that resonates in my heart. I'm not going to take what they say for granted. I'm not going to take it as the gospel truth. Just because they say it, I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to take what they say. I'm going to go back to the scriptures and I'm going to wrestle it through. I'm going to work it through. I'm going to think. When you gather with God's people, put your thinking caps on. God is a rational God. God is a logical God. God is a reasonable God. He says to the people of Israel, come, let us reason together. This is God calling us. He says, let us reason together. Let's work this through. Let's talk this out. You will find that this makes sense. And so the foundation of any gathering of God's people has to be the scriptures and only the scriptures and all of the scriptures. We've just come through the coronation of the, or not the coronation, the celebration of the queen being on the throne of England for 70 years. And during her coronation 70 years ago, she was presented with a Bible by the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And as he gave her this Bible, he said these words to her, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing the world affords. Here is wisdom. This is royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And as he gave her this book, I'm sure he was aware that here was this queen bedazzled and dressed with some of the most priceless gems and, and cloth and, and, and robes that, that, that the world could ever offer. Massive jewels of all different kinds. And he said, this book is the most valuable thing 
you can possess. When you come to meet with us, expect to reason with the scriptures. They are the foundation of the church, the most valuable thing this world can afford you. The second thing that Paul did as he's reasoning through scriptures, he, scriptures are his foundation. What does he reason with them? Well, he says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. There's a theme that is woven through the Old Testament scriptures. The necessity of a Messiah and the fact that that Messiah would suffer and die again. And that theme is, is woven again and again and again through so many texts in Scripture. And that's what Paul, over those, the course of those three Sabbath days, he, he opened the scrolls and he says, well, what about this Scripture? And what about that Scripture? And I'm sure he probably started with Genesis uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 15. And we've looked at this over the years here at the church a few times. But after Adam and Eve had sinned and, uh, and, and they had been dealt with by God, and then God is speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, which is a gift of God that there is hostility between us and darkness. There, there isn't a, a happy friendship. There's not a happy relationship. That's a God-given gift that we aren't comfortable with sin and with darkness. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There's this reminder that there are two groups of people, that there are, there are two humanities, so to speak. And he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That, that there is this, this battle that will take place, that there is this necessity that the devil be fully and finally defeated. defeated and that the thing that caused this enmity sin be dealt with. And then we walk through the Bible and we find scripture after scripture, which explains and shows us why it is we need a Messiah. We need a Messiah because of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has resulted in our sure and certain eternal death and separation from God. Our sin brings about a punishment and a curse. And, and you see this uh, example in Genesis chapter 6, not far in there, where it says, every imagination of every man all the time was evil all the time. And what did God do? He destroyed the world, but for eight people. And that example is used in the New Testament of one who actually fulfilled the role of that Savior. What about the whole sacrificial system? Why is there a sacrificial system described in the Bible? Well, the sacrificial system says there's got to be something that pays the penalty for our sins. There's got to be something that, that restores a relationship between us and between God. And the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was not something that actually solved the problem. It just pointed to a better solution. That the blood of bulls and goats could never deal with sin. It couldn't cleanse our consciences. There needed to be one whom God would send, who would die in our place, who would cleanse us inside and outside. And then you read through the book of Psalms and it describes the, the suffering of the Messiah, the reign of the Messiah, the eternal nature of the Messiah. You come to Isaiah chapter 53 and there you have the suffering servant. There it is, the suffering servant that the Messiah must suffer and die. Why must he suffer? He suffers because he bears the wrath of God that we deserve. The, the penalty for our sins are laid upon this Messiah. It's necessary for God to be able to be righteous and just at the same time. 
And there's so many Old Testament scriptures which point to this God-given servant who would be an eternal king, who would solve our problem of, of, of alienation from God. And so Paul spent time explaining and showing how the scriptures made it necessary for there to be a Messiah who suffered and died and rose again. And in fact, you can go to Psalm 116, I believe it is, and there it says that, that God's chosen one, his body would not suffer decay. Well, it's certainly not referring to David because David's body was still entombed and it suffered decay, but it was pointing to one who would die, but who would rise from the dead. Job says, oh my, I know that my redeemer lives. Well, who's a redeemer? Well, a redeemer is God's sent one, God's Messiah, that would help, that would deal with the cause of our alienation. And so when you come to church, we ought to talk about these things. We ought to talk about God's law and how, why he gave it and how we fall short of it. We ought to talk about the reality of sin, not sweep it under the carpet, not say that it doesn't exist, but face it square and then ask, well, what do we do about that? Well, that's where Paul comes to the third point where he says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So who is this Messiah? Well, this is what Paul says. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This is that. The Old Testament tell us about a Messiah that God would send. Well, who is that? That Messiah is Jesus. And then you get into the New Testament, you begin to see the wonder of this Jesus. It explains his birth. Why, why a birth of a virgin? Well, that is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah spoke 800 years earlier, but it's necessary to maintain the two natures of Christ, which I know is bizarre, but that, that, that it was actually God himself who was our Messiah and who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What does Paul say in Colossians? That in him the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. And so the, 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 the New Testament describes again and again and again and again to us that Jesus is unique. John would say in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was God. Consider his appearing, his eternal nature, like, like Melchizedek, his humanity. It says that he was like us in every way, flesh and blood, like us in every way, and yet without sin. He lived a perfect life. He lived a blameless life. He lived perfectly after God's will. He was the spotless, unblemished sacrifice of God for our sins. Paul would say, look at his life. That's why we have the Gospels. That's why you need to read the Gospels and, and read about Jesus. He's unique. Yes, he's a man. He's human. But there's something unique about him. Listen to his words. Look at his deeds. See how he suffered. Why did he die? Realize that he was raised from the dead. How was he raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead by the power of God. Clearly, that was saying God accepted his perfect sacrifice and so death could not hold him. 
Consider his resurrection. Consider his ascension. Consider now that Christ is the reigning king that is described in Isaiah chapter 9. Consider the hope of his return. Consider his offer of salvation and his warning of judgment. We need to get to Jesus. It matters what you think of Jesus. It matters what you do with Jesus. Work this through. Wrestle it through. We need to identify the Jesus of history with the Christ of the Old Testament. They are one and the same person. It matters that we understand that this is that. Are you convinced today that Jesus is God's Savior? If you are, you'll put your trust in him. You'll put your hope in him. As the Bible says, look to Christ and be saved. Place Jesus and the life that he lived, both described in the Gospels and in secular literature, place Jesus alongside the description of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and they are a perfect match. We are not waiting for God's Messiah any longer. He has come. This, loved ones, is the foundation of any church. And I pray this will always be the foundation of Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. The scriptures, the need of a savior, the realization that Jesus is that savior. Do you believe that the scriptures are the word of God? Do you believe that God's declaration that we need a Messiah, a Christ, is true? Is that your experience? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world? That is the good news, loved ones. That is the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who will put their trust in him. Jesus Christ is the way back to a relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the way to reconciliation with God. Jesus Christ is the one who bore your penalty and the curse of your sin when he suffered and died in your place. And as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, as we fix our eyes on him, as we put our hope in him, as we trust in him, we too, like him, will be raised from the dead. The foundation of any church is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The foundation of any Christian is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was struck by this. I've been reading through the book of Revelation. I, I do twice a year in my reading plan. And, and this, uh, I just saw this again there. As John is preparing to write, God is giving the gospel of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ through John. And he says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And this is speaking of John now, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ. That was John. I believe this Bible to be true. And I believe this scripture tells us about Jesus Christ. 
And then a little bit later, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why was he suffering? Why was he in exile? Because he believed this word to be true. And he believed that Jesus was the Christ. And he was persecuted and exiled for it. When Jesus opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why had they been slain? Why had Christians been persecuted? Why had they lost their lives? Because of the word of God and the witness they had borne. Because they wouldn't veer from the word of God. Because they witnessed to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Revelation chapter 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. This is furious with, the, with, with Mary and, 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 and the people of God and our, her offspring, the rest of her offspring, are you and I, the church. And it says, who are those who are offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus? If you believe that this is the word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are at war with Satan. Do we not feel the war all around us for the word of God? It's being assaulted in our culture. What's right is considered wrong. What's wrong is considered right. Confusion about gender. Confusion about sex. Confusion about sexual morality. Confusion about economics. Confusion about politics. Confusion everywhere. Truths that are declared by the world around us that are directly opposed to truths that are in the word of God. Revelation 20, verse four, and I saw the souls of those who had been headed, had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. That's what we're about as a church. Called out ones to encourage one another, to reason, to explain together, to, to wrestle with, to, to, to be convinced of the fact that God has spoken and then to be convinced of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then the people that made up the church. There's really only two responses to all of this. It says in verse 4, some were persuaded. There's some here that have been persuaded. Not all, but some have been persuaded. I hope that by the end of today that all of us would be persuaded. That would be my prayer and my hope that there would not be a single person that, who falls asleep tonight that isn't persuaded in the truthfulness of the scriptures and that Jesus is the Christ. But some were persuaded and it says they joined Paul and Silas. That means they were persuaded by the word of God. They were convinced that Jesus was the Christ and they changed loyalties. They, they left off one loyalty and they embraced another loyalty. How about you? Are you persuaded by the scriptures? Are you persuaded that Jesus is the Christ? The example of the Macedonian scriptures, this is how Paul uh, describes the response of the church in Thessalonica, of many of them, of the ones who were persuaded. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And he says, and you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, as 
All of us do. We receive the word in much affliction. Some of us, it's costly because of our family. Some of us, it's costly because of our jobs. Sometimes it's costly because of our our spouses, our, our children, our grandchildren. There's pressure, there's opposition. We receive the word of God under difficult circumstances, but with joy in the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had about you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. That's conversion. We turn from idols. We turn from things which cannot save us. We turn from things of our own making to serve the living God. So some were persuaded and some were enraged. Some just say, no, it's just a bunch of hooey. You're just all deceived. Scriptures, the word of God, you've got to be kidding me. I think, though, that underneath that just lies a rebelliousness. We want to rule ourselves. We don't want any other authority over us. That's one of the things that scriptures demand and that Christ demands is there can only be one king. There can only be one word. And our initial reaction to that is, well, that's a hostile environment. That's a difficult lordship. I don't want to submit myself to such a king like that. But when you get to know God, you realize he's merciful, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's just, he's fair, he's righteous. Jesus is a wonderful king. There's no other you would want to rule your life and tell you how to live and guide you, and there's no life like it. But initially, that angers us, and it infuriates us, and so some people turn away from it, in fact, create hostility towards that. If that's where you're leaning, just stop in your tracks for a minute this morning and say, is this rational? Is this reasonable? Is my response sensible? Is it right? And may you yet be persuaded by the truth and by the Spirit of God to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. And even this one small example of the circumstances behind the establishment of this particular church, of the truths being scriptures and the need of a Messiah and the identification of Jesus with that Messiah, and then the response. Father, we're in a battle. I I get it. It's a spiritual battle. I know that uh, we have hard hearts. I know that there is an evil one who has blinded the eyes of many. I know that there's a world that's really appealing and distracting and all of the things it calls us to, draws us away from you. But Father, would you, for a moment, for everyone that's here, would you grant them a period of time today where they just have peace and rest and they can reflect on these things and Say, yeah, there's a reasonableness to that. I think that's the direction I want to turn. Oh, Spirit of God, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.